NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Tonight on The Readout. Also, here in um, stakes exhibit number eight, in the, we'll call it the second sentence here, does he uh, request a response? What does he state? Look, the truth is that at Georgia Secretary of State and, and at Gabriel Sterling are the pieces of poop you should be mad at. That is Fulton County D.A. Fonnie Willis questioning a prosecution witness about the social media posts of Trump co-defendant Harrison Floyd as she seeks to revoke Floyd's bond for allegedly trying to intimidate witnesses and co-defendants online. Also tonight, a tentative deal to release the hostages held in the heavily demolished Gaza Strip and along with it, a possible, if brief, pause in the fighting. Plus, I have a very special announcement to make. I'm going to tell you all about it later in the show. But we begin tonight with your wish is my command. Now, I say this all the time on this show. Scaring is caring. We've told you repeatedly on this show what would happen should Donald Trump return to the White House. But don't take it from me. Take it from the legion of yes men waiting in the wings to do Trump's bidding. The thousands of loyalists being vetted for a second Trump term. Like Mike Davis, an attorney who is doing the most to prove exactly how he'd serve Trump in his mission to exact revenge upon his perceived enemies with no one to stop him. My friend and colleague Mehdi Hassan recently discussed the conservative activist lawyer who folks like white nationalist accomplice Steve Bannon are pitching as a potential Trump attorney general, which Davis responded to on social media. He threatened to denaturalize and deport Mehdi, who is British American, adding that He's already got his spot picked out in the D.C. gulag and that he'd put him in the women's cell block along with friend of the show, Trump Tim Miller, who is gay. Now, to be clear, the issue isn't right wing legal activist on TV host trolling, although the open fascism and bigotry is pretty appalling. It's the fact that Mike Davis could actually be Trump's attorney general in real life. So just remember that name. As Will Bunch of the Philadelphia Inquirer notes, the gulag touting lawyer takes the abstract warnings that U.S. democracy is on the line in the 2024 election and brings them to life. And he cloaks it in a veneer of respectability, a member of the Federalist Society, the group responsible for our right wing theocratic Supreme Court majority. He worked for Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley when he chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee. He also clerked for Neil Gorsuch and helped get Brett Kavanaugh on the court. But most importantly, Mike Davis fits Trump's Donald Trump's checklist to a T. One articulated in a Washington Post piece about how some of the otherwise competent people who served in Trump's White House do not want to see him reelected. According to the Post, Trump has argued that while in the White House, he listened to people he should not have and made bad hires, particularly at the Pentagon and justice. This time, Trump said he would look out for people who are loyal and smart. A second term in office, people close to him say, would have people who actually support President Trump, in the words of one advisor. Mike Davis is going all out to prove to Trump that he is one of those people. 
And make no mistake, Trump is already casting from a list of super loyalists for a hypothetical second term, like some of the characters who already helped him plot a coup. Trump has already pledged to bring back Michael Flynn, the one-time national security advisor he pardoned after Flynn lied to the FBI, you know, before he took the QAnon pledge. And Jeffrey Clark, the indicted Georgia co-conspirator who Trump once tried to install as attorney general to promote lies about election fraud. He's in contention for a senior role at justice. Trump might have to pardon him to make that job offer, depending on what happens in Clark's trial next November. Might as well throw in Sidney Powell while we're at it. Also plotting their return, the former Trump staffers involved with the very much out in the open Heritage Foundation Project 2025. Like ironic white nationalist Dracula Stephen Miller, who'd return in a senior role, already planning the most spectacular migration crackdown. A second Trump term could also coincide with a fully complicit Republican Congress led by new and openly Christian nationalist House Speaker Mike Johnson. He traveled to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring on Monday, meeting with Trump days after endorsing the 91 counts indicted former president. And in yet another sign of the wholesale Trumpification of the Republican Party, one of the few Republicans who voted to impeach Trump after January 6th, former Republican Congressman Peter Meijer of, Meijer of, of Michigan, who lost a primary over his impeachment vote, now says he would support Trump if he was the party nominee. Call it what you will, pathetic, embarrassing. It is, however, the Republican Party pulling it, putting its full embrace around the man who in turn is making fascism and autocracy the centerpiece of his third run for the White House, as he did recently, calling his political opponents on the left vermin. The New York Times details how that authoritarian language has experts deeply concerned. Quote, they said the former president's increasingly intensive focus on perceived internal enemies was a hallmark of dangerous totalitarian leaders. He has insinuated that the nation's top military general should be executed and called for the termination of parts of the Constitution. If he wins back the White House, he has said he would have no choice but to imprison political opponents. Which brings me back to potential second term Trump Attorney General Mike Davis, who responded to reporting from our colleagues at Morning Joe about this very prescient warning about Trump's second term plans, including imprisoning his enemies, by posting on the Hell app, formerly known as Twitter, Dear President Trump, your wish is my command. You're telling us, they are telling us who they are. Please believe them. Joining me now is Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times Magazine and creator of the 1619 Project. She is the founder of the Center for Journalism and Democracy at Howard University, which recently hosted the Democracy Summit. And Michael Steele, former RNC chair, MSNBC political analyst and host of the Michael Steele podcast. Thank you both for being here. Nicole, I do want to start with you. Uh, I recently did attend and, and did a panel at your Democracy Summit. And I think it's important that you did that because I think the first time Donald Trump ran, I was telling my producers that there were people around who were using the F word, fascist, I happen to have been one of them, and others who were saying this guy is like a blinking light of fascist language and ideas and violent uh, sort of dreams, and people just didn't take it seriously. Do you perceive that, particularly our profession, that the media is taking it more seriously? This New York Times piece suggests it may be, but what do you think? 
Yes, I do think that our profession is belatedly taking it more seriously. Um, as you said, they're they're actually using the word fascist, though hedging a bit, right, saying other people are saying these are fascist-like tendencies. Um, but we are seeing an understanding that this is serious and that so many of the, the characteristics of fascism that we seem to understand innately when we see it in other countries, uh, we are seeing it right here and we are starting to recognize it, though I still think we are still struggling with how do you cover um, right. a major presidential candidate who does appear to be acting in fascist ways. Um, there's a sense that if you if you if you politically what it is, and maybe you'll turn off readers or or viewers, or maybe you will, you know, not be able to reach the people who he speaks to. But as I said at the summit, our job as journalists is to reflect truth and not power. And I think we are still struggling with with how do you consistently cover Trump in the way that he needs to be covered. Yeah. And speaking of struggles, Michael Steele, you know, the Republican Party, I think, has given up the struggle. You know, what I have perceived among Republicans, even sort of former kind of normie Republicans like Elise Stefanik and others, is that their tactic in dealing with a fascist onslaught is to get on the train, is to get on board. Yeah. Mike Johnson, who is a Christian nationalist, full stop. But now he also is down with the fascism. Right. They're all down with it. They're all kissing the ring. They all fall to their knees. Kevin McCarthy did it. All of them did it. Mitch McConnell did it. Mitch McConnell, to, you know, do whatever you want. Just give me the court. Mm -hmm. Is there yet inside the Republican Party any hint of a, of a willingness <laughs> to fight this anywhere? It is in quiet corners. And that's part of the, part of my frustration and the frustration of a number of us who are who are trying to, to elevate the conversation inside the House because the call is coming from inside the house, right? It, it, the, the, the horror that you're afraid of is, is there behind you in the closet down the hall, and it's no longer in the closet. It's actually kind of roaming the halls and taking out members as they find them in various chambers and, and um, organizations and so forth. So the reality remains for the party is what does this become? You have still, Joy, a number of folks in the house um, certainly in the Senate, some governors around the country in office right now who believe, A, Trump will not be the nominee of the party at the end of the day. B, we'll get past this. Even if Trump is the nominee, he will lose in November of next year. And then C, we can all go down the yellow brick, ro brick road together and America will largely not remember just how badass we were. And the fact is, all three of those assumptions are wrong. Everything about it is wrong. And, and so, you know, the, the idea of democracy has become a foreign concept. It has become other to them as an, an immigrant or migrant coming into the country or a, a transgender child. It, it, that's how they're seeing the world right now. And, you know, those of us still inside the house... <laughs> It's like, OK, I think I think we need to head for the front porch because it's getting <laughs> scary up in here. Um, yes, indeed. I, I want to read just really quickly. The New York Times highlighted some of them, but there, there are there are certain tenets of fascism that scholars uh, in this area understand. And I'll just read what the New York Times wrote about that. And they they talked about a few of them. Uh, Peter Hayes, uh, according to historian Peter Hayes. 
Fascism is generally understood as an authoritarian far-right system of government in which hyper-nationalism is a central component. It, is often, it often features a cult of personality check around a strongman leader check, the justification of violence or retribution against opponents, and the repeated denigration of the rule of law. Um, there is also kind of a normalization of violence against perceived elites, including the media. We've seen, Nicole, and I know you have you've tweeted about, I don't know what we call it now that it's an ex-former Twitter, about the, the, the way that the, the country has responded to violence overseas, um, including violence against journalists and the kind of muted response, even within the press, um, to the record number of journalists who've died, for instance, in Gaza. Um, and the kind of, do, do you perceive within even our profession and within the country that we're already kind of primed to accept a great deal of violence without outrage? Absolutely. We have seen this normalization, right? Like when you when you think about um, Trump's campaign the first time where he was literally stoking violence um, at his rallies and encouraging violence and, and speaking about violence. I and mean, you can never forget him saying he could shoot someone in Times Square and people would still vote for him. And so what happens is when you you constantly have that rhetoric, then you do start to get a bit immune to it. And, and I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that across the board. And I also think it's really important to, to just take a second and note, we've never had multiracial democracy in America except for the last 60 years. It has always been contested. So what we are seeing is a rise of this, this strongman leader who is not concerned about, you know, his, his people who are supporting him. They're not concerned with economic anxiety. It's demographic anxiety. And they are not um, embracing of democracy, if democracy means a lot of people of color and other folks get to decide who leads our country. And so this is the response. And yes, violence is a huge part of that. Violence has always been a part of American politics. We just have pretended that it hasn't been. Mm. And, and, you know, the reality is, you know, the one time we did try, what, 12 years of reconstruction, which was, of course, violently overthrown, right? With, with, with uh, exactly. quickness, um, and with ferocity, right. you know, and, and Michael Steele, you know, I, I feel like Americans have a sense, you know, nothing bad can happen to us because we are the essential, special nation. But, but we are really not that much different than countries like, let's say, Argentina, which now has no, its no. own Trump. Trump is now praising this man who is threatening. He's saying he's going to do a complete abortion ban. He was elected in large part due to high inflation but there's his triple digit. Ours is like 3%. Um, and he was mainly supported by young, angry men who, who say, yeah, ban abortion. You know, there's a sort of an incel factor or whatever it is. If the conditions aren't that different, economic complaints, demographic complaints, complaints about immigration on and on and on. I don't understand how people understand how that we can't be Argentina. <laughs> Well, I think there there's a number of elements uh, that that are at play here, which is why uh, you know the the challenge is trying to talk about democracy in layman's terms. If you if you kind of mm -hmm. get where my drift is going, there just just kind of bring it bring it to a point where it it doesn't seem like it's a, a foreign concept to people uh, to talk about these things and these behaviors, especially the behaviors. So the idea of sort of throwing around fascism. Right. In this environment in America, it's you know, it's almost sounds elitist. It almost sounds like oh, they're using big words. Well, your mama never used big words when she was describing your bad behavior before she whipped your behind. 
And I think that's kind of the space we need to get back into is breaking down this conversation, which is why democracy conversations that Nicole and others are having on on campuses like Howard and elsewhere become important because it's a way of sort of taking the mystery out of it and saying, no, these are the effects of this behavior. These are the consequences of this behavior. So you look at Argentina and go, well, that's over there. This is not America. No, it is. And let me show you how it is. Let me tell you how it is. We just had in in the last 30 seconds a conversation about the struggle of African-Americans in a post, uh, you know, reconstruction period or during reconstruction and how much the country repulsed against that and, and deeply fought against it in many quarters. That's part of that narrative and that experience that we can relate forward to today in what we're seeing and sort of breaking it down. But of course, we can't talk about such things because that's part of teaching black history as well. (laughs) That's critical race theory, Michael Steele. And that's illegal in like about 20 states. There I go again. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Or Christopher Rufo theory, if you want to call it that, because that's what it really is. Uh, Nicole, Hannah Jones, Michael Steele, thank you. Valuable conversation. I'll Google fascism and the tenets of fascism and you really scaring is caring for real. You'll appreciate it. Thank you both. Coming up next, Fulton County DA Bonnie Willis appears in court herself trying to revoke the bond of a Trump co-defendant for allegedly intimidating witnesses and obstructing justice. You know, the kind of stuff Trump gets away with on a regular basis. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. In a powerful show of force today, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis made her case against Harrison Floyd, one of Donald Trump's 18 co-defendants in the Georgia election interference case. Now, if you remember Floyd as the head of Black Voices for Trump, orchestrated the strategy of harassing and intimidating election worker Ruby Freeman in an attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Today, what was at issue in front of Judge Scott McAfee was whether Floyd violated his bond agreement by posting inflammatory inflammatory social media posts directed at a number of witnesses in the case, including Ms. Freeman and Gabriel Sterling of the Georgia Secretary of State's office. Floyd, the perpetual troll that he is, began the hearing by reading from How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, the Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. But Madam District Attorney did not come to play. 
Your Honor, I just need to prove he violated the order once. He knew what he was doing. They signed this order. They agreed to it. There was a good reason to have an order with these conditions. And what we're really here to decide today is does this order mean something or not? He doesn't get a, oh, I'm sorry, after I've already intimidated the witnesses in this case. It's too late. You should not have done this. You knew it was against the rules. You put someone in a danger as a result of doing it. And now you need to be held accountable for it so that we can make sure that all of the defendants in this case get a fair trial and that witnesses are kept safe. For over three hours, Willis laid out how Floyd broke the terms of his bond agreement. The first witness to be called was Michael Hill, an assistant chief in Willis's office, who testified about the authenticity and content of Floyd's posts on ex-Twitter, and how the targets felt threatened. Here he is reading a message he received from Jenna Ellis after Floyd attacked her on former Twitter. So in the message, Ms. Jenna Ellis states, I saw it a couple days after it was posted. Yes, I believe it was meant to both intimidate and harass me and also encourage others to harass me, which others have done in the comments and separate posts Willis also called two more witnesses, Gabriel Sterling and Von DuBose, the lawyer for Ruby Freeman. Floyd is such a Trump disciple that his lawyers echoed Trump's lawyer by arguing that his comments were political speech protected by the First Amendment. We don't and we should not chill speech. He has the right to make political speech. He has the right to talk about the facts of this case in, in Twitter. D.A. Willis wanted Floyd remanded into custody today. The judge did not agree to that, but he did recognize that some of Floyd's posts were a technical violation of the terms of his bond, but that it didn't merit the revocation of his bond. He had the state modify the bond agreement to include tighter restrictions on his social media communications. Joining me now is Katie Fang, trial attorney and host of the Katie Fang Show on MSNBC, and Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, professor at Georgetown School of Law and MSNBC legal analyst. One of our favorite combos, Fang and Butler, the law office of Fang and Butler are here. Katie, I do want to start with you. You've been in that courtroom a lot. Please talk to us about this. First of all, the fact that Fonnie Willis is there in person making these arguments and the fact that it seemed that Harrison Floyd did not respect the process. He seemed to pop off and to shake his head and not take it seriously. Your thoughts? So I'm going to start with your last point first. And the reason why that's good news for DA Fonnie Willis's office is she just set him up to fail today, as did Judge McAfee. And what do I mean by that? Well, with a tighter, more detailed, more narrow modified bond conditions for Harrison Floyd when he violates, because we know he will. He shouldn't be reading how to be a Roman emperor. He should be reading crime for dummies because then he'd figure out how to not get into trouble. But it was a show of force. This is the first time that D.A. Fonnie Willis, since the release of that indictment, has been in court for pretrial hearings. And it makes sense because it put the defense on notice of the kind of prosecutor, trial lawyer, litigator that Fonnie Willis delivers, the type of work and performance that she does. It was straight fire today. And that's what was needed because, you know, Joy, this is the first time that the DA's office was on the offensive. On prior hearings, it's been defense motions to dismiss, et cetera. But today it was the state's motion to revoke his bond. And Harrison Floyd shows no discipline. He has no discipline. He doesn't listen to his lawyers. He doesn't listen. Sounds just like Donald Trump, in my opinion, right? Mm. But now we have a much more narrow, modified bond order. 
and it's just going to be violated. And I think very soon. And when he when it gets violated, then he goes to jail, right? Yeah. And I think what happens today is Judge McAfee basically put Harrison Floyd on notice as well. I've given you a chance. It's not really a second chance. And the judge made sure he made it clear. I'm not giving him a second chance. I'm just saying that there needs to be more nuances in light of the fact that social media exists. And I think it was an acknowledgement that, look, we got to catch up. The judicial system has to catch up with social media. It's the 21st century. So when you're having these consent bond orders, meaning when the sides are agreeing to the terms of your bond, they got to be really, really specific so that you don't allow people to try to thread a needle in a way where they can get away with threatening somebody like yeah. Ruby Freeman over over and over again. Right. And that's what he's on trial for. Um, you know, Paul, can you put that picture video back up, please? Uh, downtown Sterling Brown, our wonderful director of him. This guy thinks he's Donald Trump. He's popping off in the courtroom. You could see him there sort of rolling his eyes, looking around. He uh, apparently shook his head as she made her arguments. He was openly derisive um, or, or she was openly derisive, saying he can publicly criticize me all he wants. I don't value his opinion. He said at one point, she's just mad that she can't get past the Uncle Tom. That's because she's a little district attorney. At one point, um, uh, at some point, uh, Willis called Donald Trump Mr. Trump, and he loudly corrected her President Trump and was reprimanded by McAfee. It's a ridiculous performative mess. Does it surprise you that he, who has been, he was the only guy jailed before, remember? Are you surprised <laughs> he didn't get jailed? He was the only one, the, uh, the, the, the black guy. <laughs> yeah, again, I, I'm not surprised because the judge said he doesn't think that Mr. Floyd is trying to intimidate witnesses, but rather Mr. Floyd might be trying to holler at some of his co-defendants. So it's a technical violation, but not a big one, and he shouldn't go to jail. But can we talk about the other way that Mr. Floyd is just like Mr. Trump, you know, Donald Trump loves to call black prosecutors racist. He said that about D.A. Bragg. He said it about Letitia James. And he said it about D.A. Willis. Today, Mr. Floyd played the race card, which is kind of weird in a case with a black prosecutor and a black defendant. Mr. Floyd's lawyer claims that D.A. Willis is just out to get Mr. Floyd because he's a black conservative. The defense says it, it's just like when another black conservative, Clarence Thomas, said he was subject to a high-tech lynching when Anita Hill said that Thomas had sexually harassed her. So according to the defense, D.A. Willis is just another black woman trying to bring a black male conservative down. Joy, we don't have enough time to unpack how wrong and dumb that claim is, but I'm not surprised that D.A. Willis felt compelled to show up in the courtroom today to address this herself. Well, you know, but he may not want that analogy because in that case, that was Clarence Thomas credibly accused of harassing a black woman. And in this case, he is credibly accused of harassing and essentially terrorizing a black woman and her black woman daughter. So he may have stumbled into an analogy that ain't cute, right, Paul? Uh, that, that's exactly right. So the bond order, the reason that he's not locked up prior to trial requires him not to communicate in any way with people who are going to be witnesses. We know that 
Ruby Freeman is going to be a witness in this case. The indictment accuses Mr. Floyd of trying to intimidate her, saying that she's going to get locked up because of election fraud, trying to pressure Ms. Freeman into admitting that she committed election fraud, which she absolutely did not permit. And so you're totally right. It's Mr. Floyd who really is attacking, harassing a black woman in the same way that Anita Hill's very credible allegations against Clarence Thomas suggested that he did. Yeah, all he needs is a nice, rich benefactor to take him on fancy trips. And then the analogy would be complete. And a Jenny Thomas to be an insurrectionist. Anyway, he's the insurrectionist himself. Katie Fang, Paul Butler, thank you both very much. Coming up, the Israeli government is meeting right now, discussing a tentative deal for the release of some hostages held by Hamas. I will bring you the latest next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. How does it feel knowing that some of the hostages may walk free, but your son may not be among them? I'm happy for the one who will get free. But I am sad for myself and for Omer. Because, as I said, I'm a mother, and all the mother needs is to protect her son. It is a very emotional day for the families of the 200-plus hostages taken in the deadly October 7 surprise attack on southern Israel by Hamas, in which some 1,200 people were killed. Today, the Israeli government commenced meetings on a potential hostage deal. NBC News is reporting that this possible deal would include around 50 women and children held by Hamas, exchanged for around 150 Palestinian women and children held in Israeli jails. The deal would also include a four-day pause in the bombardment of Gaza to allow for the hostage exchange, as well as for three to 400 trucks of humanitarian aid to be allowed into Gaza each day. Officials tell NBC there is also an option to extend the pause for additional days in exchange for an additional 10 hostages per day. These numbers are subject to change, and of course, the deal could still fall apart. But if successful, it would bring relief not only to the families of these hostages, but temporary relief to the people of Gaza, who have faced a 46-day bombardment, as well as a humanitarian crisis, with more than 14,000 dead as of tonight. Joining me now is Daniel Levy, president of the U.S. Middle East Project and former Middle East peace negotiator, and Shadi Hamid, member of the Washington Post editorial board and the author of The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, 
and the rise and fall of an idea. Thank you both um, for being here. Daniel, I do want to start with you to get your comments on this. This is a limited deal. And I will note just for our audience that it is only for Israeli um, citizens and dual nationals, most uh, per our great reporter, Raf Sanchez, of the American of dual national. Mostly, many of the dual nationals are American. Um, but that does leave out an unknown number of Thai and other internationally, other, you know, people from other countries who the Israeli government is saying their countries would have to negotiate on their own. So those are just some of the facts of the deal. But what do you make of the fact that there is at least this limited potential breakthrough? I think it's an extremely important and welcome development, actually. I'll tell you what a lead Israeli political commentator in Haaretz has just posted and the title of his piece. And he has said, public pressure has led Netanyahu to agree to a deal which he refused until now. Now, I think the Israeli government are going to say only the military effort has led to the agreement of this deal. The truth is it's a deal that's basically been available for several weeks. I was briefed on it almost a month ago. But whether that's the narrative they need or not, the important thing is that you now have a dynamic where there will be several days of pause in the fighting. You will get some people out. And the internal pressure that led to this, I think, will only increase. And this will be a variable that Netanyahu cannot control. And what I think it would be important to see is that there's external pressure as well to make sure that after five days, we don't return to the horrible scenes, especially when you see so many of the Palestinians in Gaza now crowded into the south and things could get even worse with this UN Secretary General saying this is unprecedented and unparalleled killing of civilians in all his time at the head of the UN. Right. And Shadi, I mean, the pressure has been external and internal. Externally, there have just been eruptions of protests all over the world on college campuses in the U.S. and Britain and all over the world. Indonesia. People are marching against what's happening in Gaza. But at the same time, internally, I think we have some VO of it. Um, members of families who have hostages, um, whose hostages, you know, whose family members are missing, marched on um, Bibi Netanyahu's offices, they marched on him because they were incredibly angry and, and have demanded that he meet with them, that he sit with them, and that their feeling is that returning the hostage has not been prioritized over, you know, taking out Hamas. So what do you think can come of the internal and external pressures on someone, Bibi Netanyahu, who is, you know, to, um, uh, to, to Daniel's point, uh, you know, according to reports, was offered some kind of a deal like this, you know, days in and turned it down, but now is interested in taking it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, pressure makes a big difference. And it's not just internal pressure within Israel, but also here in the U.S., a growing number of Democratic Party politicians have called for a ceasefire or at least a humanitarian pause. And if you look at the Democratic base, especially young people, have been increasingly disappointed and angry at the Biden administration's inability to put more pressure on Netanyahu. And I think it is really worth emphasizing just how staggering the level of destruction in Gaza has been. We've all seen those images. And, you know, Gaza City is no longer a city in any real sense of the word. 1.6 million out of the 2.2 million Palestinians in Gaza have been displaced. So inevitably, there's going to be an outcry. And I'm glad to see that the Biden administration has finally put 
you know, more pressure on Israel to make some of these concessions and compromises. But as Daniel says, this should have happened. We shouldn't have had to wait this long for for a pause in hostilities. And I, I think it's I, my hope is that um, it can be extended, that we can use these four or five days to really have a conversation about what is the day after look like in Gaza? Because there has to be a day after for the people of Gaza who have really very little to hope for at this point. And I do want to talk about that. And, 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 you know, and there, there is a potential that this gets extended, Daniel, a little bit more. There is a, allegedly, a, as part of this deal, perhaps more extensions for more hostages, that it would be a sort of sort of step process, that some more people would come out uh, for additional days. Obviously, you know, uh, Hamas sees that, that that as leverage. Is there something that can come of it? Because it, it's hard to imagine that the devastation of Gaza is what's moving Bibi Netanyahu to make a deal. It's the political pressure that he's under. His poll numbers have tanked completely. It's, I've seen polls that say something like eight in 10 Israelis want him out, that his political career might be finished. He also still faces legal issues. Like the pressure on him is, it doesn't feel that it's because of the carnage. It's because of his own internal problems. Well, indeed, Joy. And I think that's why, amongst other factors, but a big factor, why Netanyahu has tried not to go for this deal, because he knows that once this happens, the dynamics shift. People want to see the rest of those Israelis out. And I think they'll be willing to pay the price, as you say, that brings Hamas leverage to the forefront. There'll be other prisoner releases. They'll have to be more sustainable ceasefires. And he knows that the morning after, he is almost certainly toast. That's when he faces the music. And he has brought this on himself. He is a politician. Sorry, Joy. No, go. Keep continuing. He is, he is a politician who formed this extremist coalition, more extreme than anything before. It's not that he was stuck with these characters, Ben Gavir and Smotrich, and he goes deep into his own Likud party, who openly call for ethnic cleansing, for the eradication of Palestinian villages, who wear apartheid as a badge of pride, not as something they shirk from as an accusation. You know what he did before the election? He was worried they may not get into the parliament if they didn't run together. He brought them to his home and got these guys, Ben Gavir and Smotrich, to form a joint list. If you can imagine, it's like bringing the head of the Proud Boys and the Grand Wizard of the KKK together to form a political party so that you can be in coalition with them. So he is paying the price for his own extremism. And the pressure is, uh, Shadi, also on Joe Biden, because he is seeing his own coalition fracture and young voters, you know, something like seven in 10 oppose him and his actions in this matter. Is there some world in which Biden also feels political pressure to push for a solution to the actual thing, a solution to the occupation, a solution to the, the, the need for a two state solution? Is there a world in which all of these pressures create an opening for that? Well, yeah, the longer this goes on, the more Biden looks bad. And I think there was growing pressure. I have to say, just to be straight up, I mean, I was very disappointed in any number of comments the Biden team said, including Biden himself, when he infamously questioned whether dead Palestinians were actually dead and cast doubt 
on on the numbers and it turns out that those numbers were were largely reliable and accurate and that i think that i think went viral you know particularly in the middle east and in the global south where a lot of folks were saying not only is biden unquestioningly supporting israel and the bombardment of gaza he's actually questioning whether Palestinians are dying. And that just, it's not, it's obviously not a good look. It erodes America's moral leadership to the extent that we still claim to have moral leadership. So, you know, at some level, um, this, this, you know, I really do. And also internally, we should say there's a lot, there's been a lot of staffers in the defense department and state department who have been criticizing their leadership for not speaking out. And there is a generational divide here. That's very important to note. Indeed. Uh, I want to have you guys back because I think this is an important conversation. What happens next, I think, is critical to discuss. So hopefully you will accept our invitation to come back together uh, because we really love talking with you. Daniel Levy, Shadi Hamid, thank you both very much. Um, Thank thank you. you. And coming up, a very, very special announcement about something I've been cooking up that is almost ready to come out of the oven. Back in a sec. Just after New Year's Day in 1963, James Baldwin arrived in Mississippi as he embarked on a lecture tour through the American South for the Congress on Racial Equality. The tour was launched in response to the violent riots that accompanied James Meredith's integration of the University of Mississippi months before. Meredith's push to enter Ole Miss had been backed by Medgar Wiley Evers, who had himself been rejected by the state's premier college simply because he was black. Baldwin didn't just dine with Medgar and Merle Evers at their home on Gine Street in Jackson's lone one-block black middle-class subdivision, where Merle cooked up a special meal, as she did for all of Medgar's important visitors. He also rode with Medgar into the Delta, where Medgar spent long days investigating the everyday indignities and vicious crimes perpetrated against black Mississippians, as the planter class fought to keep them tied to the cotton plantations where black families had been trapped during slavery. Baldwin saw with his own eyes the fear and terror in those men, women, and children, some of whom Medgar had to smuggle out of Mississippi to escape the threat of lynchings, financial, and sexual abuse. Decades later, he recalled Medgar as a great man, a beautiful man, and a troublemaker in the way Baldwin respected recalling that as he sped through the Delta at top speed in his blue Oldsmobile Rocket 88, designed to help him outrun the Klan, he possessed the calm of someone who knows they're going to die before their time, like Martin Luther King. Medgar Evers did die before his time. He was shot dead by a white supremacist in his own driveway at just 37 years old that June, as Murley and their children paid agonizing witness. But before that awful moment, In the wee hours after President John F. Kennedy publicly committed to introducing a civil rights act that Medgar had fought for, Medgar and Murley lived a love story for the ages. They met at Alcorn College, later Alcorn University, when he was a 25-year-old World War II veteran and she was a naive 17-year-old freshman, a singer with a knack for the piano who'd performed with a popular girls group in segregated Vicksburg, Mississippi. It was love at first sight that became a reluctant civil rights partnership between an activist, anti-colonialist, and a 1950s housewife who just wanted her man at home. When Medgar was assassinated, it launched Murley on a decades-long quest for justice and a civil rights legacy of her own. If you have not guessed, 
This is the topic of a book. It's called Medgar and Murley, The Love Story That Awakened America. And I am very excited to share it with my readout readers fam. I wrote the book, which let's face it, will probably be banned in Florida and other red states because I love history and feel that it needs to be shared. When people land in Jackson, Mississippi today, they land in Medgar Evers International Airport, yet many don't even know why. Though James Baldwin called Medgar one of the three great civil rights leaders, alongside Malcolm and Martin, his story has largely been lost over time. Their assassinations ultimately drove his to the back pages, though he was the first national-level civil rights leader to be assassinated in the 1960s the age of civil rights heroism, making Murley our first national civil rights widow. I am super excited about the book, for which I interviewed the great Murley Evers Williams about a half a dozen times, along with many of the people who lived this story firsthand. If you'd like to check it out, you can scan that cute little QR code on your screen to pre-order. The book officially goes on sale February 6th, 2024, and tour dates are coming. You can find out more at msnbc.com slash Medgar and Murley. And we'll be right back. On the readout blog tonight, Jahan Jones reports on Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy's awkward Thanksgiving themed chat in Iowa and why it signals the rise of Christian nationalism on the right. The three candidates' conversation at last week's family leader event was a nod to religious extremists, John says, and a warning to establishment Republicans in the RNC. All that and more at msnbc.com slash readout blog. And that's tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Follow. 